where our life's journey has carried us matters. It shapes us, it motivates us. Where we came from influences where we are coming from. Understanding the road we traveled, who traveled before us and who travels with us, helps us better understand how we reached our destinations. You're not gonna wanna miss this one, folks. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Good good evening, everybody. This is Chuck Williams, WRBL. I'm a reporter. But tonight, we have got two very special guests. We have got two sitting judges who've agreed to join us. And the words you just heard me read a moment ago were words that were penned by Judge Clay Land. Clay's here with us. He is a federal court judge, U.S. District Court judge stationed here in Columbus. And then we've got his brother, Ben Land, who is a Superior Court judge. Welcome, guys. It's really glad, good to have you here good to be with you Chuck. thanks for having us it uh this has only taken five years uh i've been wanting to do this story for five years uh when i was at the newspaper i'd approach y'all about sitting down and doing a feature and this is kind of what we're gonna way we're gonna do it but clay the words you just heard me read tell me a little few things about what those words are and kind of what they mean well really they were just a uh, introduction to uh book I decided to write uh, mainly for my children in which I wanted to provide them with some information about their family and their dad and our predecessors and ancestors. And once I got into it, um, it had a profound effect on me. I think going back and looking at where you've come from and the people whose shoulders you have stood upon and and the foundation that was laid by those who come before you, I think when you think about those things, it um, tells you even more about yourself. And it also, for me, uh, makes you grateful that you've had the opportunities that, uh, that I've had. Ben, what does it mean to be a land? There, land is a, is a family that has deep, deep roots in this community. I think to me it means to be an independent thinker. Somebody that treats everybody that they cross paths with with respect. It doesn't matter whether it's the wealthiest person in town or the poorest person in town. I think we were raised to treat everybody the same, treat everybody with respect. And the lands that I know, and there's quite a few of them, are all pretty independent thinkers. They think for themselves. They don't always follow the prevailing winds, uh, but they're independent thinkers. Would you agree with that, Clay? I would agree with that um, wholeheartedly. Our, our father, uh, who's Jack, uh, he used to um, collect quotations and different stories and those kind of things back before you had Google. And to save those type of quotations, you needed to cut them out and clip them out and put them in a manila folder. And one that I remember him always uh, reciting or providing uh, when I was growing up was um, the quote of being able to march to the beat of the drummer that you hear, no matter how measured or far away it may be. And he instilled that in me, and I'm sure in Ben also, that you've just oftentimes got to march to that beat of your own drummer and not just follow the crowd. Um, And he didn't preach it. He just kind of subtly would say, you should think about this. And um, it, it... those are the kind of things that you uh, that you remember. Your dad's a real estate guy. He uh, he was a politician briefly. How did your dad impact both of y'all's lives? Well, for me, um, growing up, um, just seeing him involved in the things that he was involved in. Uh, he was a small business man. But he also was involved in community activities, having served on the first uh, city council. He was elected to the first ever consolidated government city council back in 1970. And um, just, of course, at that time, I'm 10 years old, so there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about it. But you did observe that he was involved in something other than just his paying job. And he served on the city council, I guess, about 19 years, I think. And um, I think it was just a matter of uh, uh, being a model of uh, it being important to be involved in something greater than yourself. 
for you, Ben? Yeah, I would agree with that. I'd say three things that I learned from him would be work ethic um, and his independence and his just ability to treat everybody the same no matter which station in life they come from. Uh, he is a worker. He still to this day at 85 years old works, outworks about anybody in this town. He works six or seven days a week. He's at the office till seven or eight o'clock at night sometimes. Uh, and he has instilled that in me, and he has instilled his way of treating his fellow men and women with dignity and respect no matter where they come from. I mean, I know there's an age difference here. So age difference, seven, eight years, seven Seven years, which I think is significant. Uh, for example, when um, when I was going off to college, Ben was probably only 11 years old, and then I was gone for seven years. And then when I came back home to practice law, that's when he went off to college. So there's a, it, seven years doesn't sound like a big age difference, and I hope it doesn't look like a big age difference. But it's a fairly <laughs> significant age difference when, uh, when you go off to school. For me, it was four years undergrad and three years of law school, and it was in Athens. So there was no reason to really return home to Columbus while you're in Athens. Uh, Why is that? that much. I mean, what do uh, you do in Athens <laughs> that you can't do in Columbus? And, uh, but to be gone during that time while he was, I guess, uh, I guess 11 years old, you're in sixth or seventh grade. Uh, but, uh, but the age difference is we're seven years apart. Did, I mean, he's obviously your big brother, but did you look up to him? Did you, did, I mean. Do I have to admit that on the air? Uh, <laughs> Just tell the truth. I looked up Josh. to all three of my siblings. I have three older siblings. I'm the youngest of four. Clay is the oldest of four. And yeah, I looked up to all four of them. I respected them for what they did and what they have stood for in their lives. They've all gone on and done great things in their life. Uh, but he is right. You know, I basically grew up in most of my formative years while he was in Athens. Uh, I was at home. Uh, my sister was still around, but he and my other brother were off in Athens having a good time. And by the time it was time for me to show up in Athens in 1985, he graduated from law school. So it was like, here comes the next crowd. Um, but, yeah, I looked up to all of them. I think all three of my siblings share similar traits, and there are some of those traits that I mentioned earlier that my father exemplified, his father and mother exemplified before him, and our mother as well. And I'm, I'm going to take an opportunity to brag on, really it's bragging on my mother and mother and father as much as anything because um, my mother she uh, she went to Auburn also and she left uh, probably her s sophomore junior year because she and my father got married when my dad graduated and he went into the Air Force he had a is Auburn, he an Auburn grad he is an Auburn grad how'd he, you he, wonder he, off the off the farm man he, he's actually an Alabama Polytechnic Institute grad in state which, tuition which is what his diploma says, but he had a ROTC three-year commitment and uh, left Auburn and graduated, and she left with him uh, and did not complete her, her degree. So my mom uh, was, did not complete college. My dad had an undergraduate degree in industrial management, and he raised four children, uh, two of whom uh, became judges and graduated from law school with honors, a daughter who graduated from Georgia Law School with honors, and another son who's got a PhD in electrical engineering who is actually a rocket scientist over um, in Huntsville. And um, that, to me, is a reflection on them. I don't know exactly how that worked out, but it's a... I mean, that's me, four for four. It's pretty amazing that, um, that they were able to lay a foundation for that to happen. Your si your sister is she practicing now or is she's she not practicing? She runs the gift shop at River Road Pharmacy. She married a pharmacist uh, who owns River Road Pharmacy, and she's Jay Lo Jay, Jay Logan. Yeah, and she's uh, responsible for that the, for the non prescription side of the of of the pharmacy. But she did practice after she graduated from from law school with a firm in Atlanta for a few years, and then she was in the legal department with Aflac here in Columbus for a couple of years. When you look at the, the success of your you and your siblings, 
I mean, obviously the credit, a lot of the credit does have to go to your parents. I mean, without any question, right? I think a lot of it goes to them. And I think it, uh, I think part of what they did, though, they were not, um, they, I would say they were the opposite of what they call today the helicopter parent that is always looking over the child and making sure they get their homework done and is signing them up for the next activity and is telling them they need to do this by eighth grade or they're not going to get in this college. They were kind of there was an expectation that we do well and there was an expectation that we continue our education but it was not micromanaged, and I think that allowed us to grow up far more independent uh, than some people do these days and uh, probably with a lot less anxiety than kids, kids have today. But uh, that's the way they uh, – that's my record. I know that's how they treated myself and my other brother that's a year younger than I am, and I think that's it probably they, applies yeah. to Ben and Linda too. That's how they treated all four of us. It was a hands-off approach to parenting, but they were parents you didn't want to disappoint. Uh, they were not overbearing. They did not have a lot of rules, but they were just people you looked up to and admired and didn't want to disappoint. I know one of the things people who are not as familiar with Columbus, they see Judge Land and Judge Land, and I'm going to call y'all Ben and Clay for the purposes of this, and I apologize. I'll go back to Judge Land and Judge Land tomorrow. But, you know, in they look and they say, well, there was a judge land before y'all two. And they, but that wasn't your dad. It was, it was your uncle, right? Great uncle. That's actually John Land was our grandfather's brother. So my father was an only child. So we had, we had 10 great uncles and great aunts. And uh, John was the baby of that group. John Land was a powerful and notable figure in Columbus in the history of the 20th century Columbus, right? Well, he was, he was a part of the old courthouse crowd uh, that existed and really thrived from the, um, in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, and into the 60s. And that's when he kind of cut his, uh, his political path was um, in the late 50s and early 60s. And then he remained a Superior Court judge up until the 1990 or so, I believe. But around 1970, that courthouse crowd was no longer the center of influence that it had been earlier. But when he first started as a solicitor, which is the currently the district attorney, um, a lot of the political activity centered around the courthouses and the Superior Court judges. Um, and he was in the center of all that. Didn't mean he ran the show, but because uh, there are a lot of people that didn't, on the other side, that didn't like his approach. But uh, he was very influential, not just as a judge in those early days particularly, but as a, as a um, center of influence. Was he influential in your decision to go into law? Um, some, but it wasn't really dispositive because... Uh, I mean, you always heard Uncle John was the judge, and, you know, you knew that he was the judge. But um, I don't think he ever encouraged or discouraged me to go to law school. So it didn't really uh, – it wasn't really a, a factor for me. Uh, I got enthusiastic about law school probably my junior year in, in uh, high school. Uh, Where'd you go to high school? I, I went to Brookstone. And um, – there was a teacher there um, who taught. This was the first time they taught this course, and it was a law course. And they would actually, they actually had excerpts from Supreme Court cases that you would read and you would brief, just like you did in law school, but on a lesser scale. And uh, it really appealed to me, and uh, that's when I got really turned on to. To be a you lawyer. remember who that teacher was? Ronald Burkhart, who's no longer there. I don't even know if he's still living. He left Brookstone and retired and left the Columbus area. But he was an outstanding social studies teacher and uh, really had a, a passion. And he taught, uh, using, in that class, he taught using the Socratic method where he would ask the questions and you'd have to respond, and he'd try to put you on the spot. But it was, um, there were real-life issues. I mean, we had some of the bit, some of the, more important Supreme Court decisions, and we would discuss them there in class. And um, it, it, was, uh, it felt like we were doing something important. 
What about you? Did did you follow your brother into it, or not and really? You and your sister, I guess. Not really. And I came to the to the law and the realization that that's what I wanted to do a little bit later than my brother. I also had Mr. Burkhardt in high school. He was a fabulous teacher. Um, but I went to college majoring in finance, thinking that I was going to try to find a way to make money through some business enterprise. And about three or four years into it, I wasn't sure that I wanted to go work for the bank or do any other finance-type job, so I applied to law school. And I figured it would give me three more years to make a decision about exactly what I wanted to do. I was still not convinced when I applied to law school that I wanted to be a lawyer, but I knew that a law degree would be valuable. I knew that it would be something that could give me a diversity of choices to choose from after I graduated. And once I started law school, I was one of those rare individuals that actually liked it. I enjoyed my professors. I made great relationships in law school, uh, not only with students, but with some of the teachers. And I just enjoyed the experience. And after my first year of law school, I was convinced that I wanted to not only be a lawyer, but I wanted to become a trial lawyer and try cases. And the surprising thing, Chuck, is that he didn't become a professor. I don't know if you know about his academic record, but he graduated from Georgia with all A's, undergrad, and then law school, I don't think, made a single B. So you were near the top of the class at UGA Law. Yeah, I was second in the class out of 202 students. So as in one in front of you, that'd be close <laughs> Who to the Who was the one? <laughs> where, where is he now or she? Ask him the story about whether he contested a grade, but they made the difference between him being one and two. Well, uh, that's what a lawyer should do. <laughs> I didn't contest any grades in law school. I, I, had a, I had a B plus in college, and I asked the professor a question about the exam. And he went back and looked at the exam, and he said, well, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, and I'll give you an A. So that, that, that allowed me to maintain my 4.0 in uh, undergrad. What about perfection was important to you? You know, I just wanted to get things right. I wanted to work hard, and I wanted to get things right. And I guess all of us have within us a fear of failure at some level. And when you don't want to fail and you're motivated, then you work hard to get it right. And that's, that's all I've ever known when, when it comes to either school, law school, law practice, or judging. I think it all comes down to how hard you're willing to work. And I would I tell young lawyers all the time, young lawyers who have worked for me both in the law practice and in the down at the courthouse, that the difference between a really good lawyer and a really average lawyer is usually their work ethic. And if the lawyer is willing to put in the effort to do the job, uh, I think they can excel. But that's the difference between a really good Ditch Could, digger and a really average ditch absolutely digger. Absolutely right. You're 100% right on that. But I think you see it in the law as well. I think you see it in any job or any profession. Well, I mean, I've noticed this. I said a minute ago when I've covered stuff in, in Clay's court, there are times that I was convinced as a neutral observer sitting in there that Clay on the bench knew the case better than the lawyer that was in front of him. And it became painfully obvious to everybody in that courtroom, including the defendant usually. And, you know, so is that work ethic or is what is that that makes you know that case inside and out when you're, it's only going to be in front of you for 25 minutes or two hours? I think just a um, desire to be prepared. Uh, I, I tell lawyers that I think that one of the most important things uh, for any lawyer uh, is to be prepared, and uh, that takes hard work. I mean, a lot of people see lawyers on TV, and they think that the best lawyers are the lawyers that um, have the uh, best rhetoric and give the best speeches that appear to be extemporaneous. The best lawyers are the best prepared lawyers. The best extemporaneous speeches are the best prepared extemporaneous speeches where you've thought about Nothing's the issue. Nothing's an accident. Where you've thought about the issue. Um, and uh, to be a good lawyer, and I think to be a good judge, you have to have attention to detail. And that's just uh, partly being prepared. 
when you came home from UGA, and both of y'all are du- what they call double dogs, and for people that don't know what that is, it's not something you can get at scramble uh, uh, get at Dinglewood. Tell us what a double dog is. Well, a double dog, as I understand it, is simply somebody who has obtained more than one degree from the University of Georgia. And there are a number of lawyers in this town that proudly point to the fact that they're double dogs. Uh, there are, and non-lawyers, I'm sure. But when you came home, Clay, you got your law degree in hand, you start practicing, but you also followed your dad a little bit. Who Your dad was a key player in the consolidation of the county and city governments, knew a lot about the charter, was heavily involved in that. You followed your dad to city council. Why? Well, and I did directly follow him to city council because I actually ran for the seat that he vacated when he retired, uh, which um, some people didn't think that was appropriate, and I heard about that a little bit on the campaign trail that I was just trying to inherit the seat. Who'd you run against? Um, I ran against, there were a couple of people, and the, the, the final election was between me and a fellow named Johnny Dennis. And, um, uh, but um, it seems like, uh, I think Mr. Cantrell was in that race at one time. Mark's and I, dad. And, and I don't know if he was in. No, James Grant? I think it was Mark, because wasn't he Johnny Outlaw? Yeah. I think he ran when he was Johnny Outlaw. <laughs> it seems like in the Democratic, back then the city council races were partisan, and I was on the Republican side. And it seems like he either announced or he either ran and got beat by Mr. Dennis now. Oh. I, I'm not sure if he, if he continued that race or if he got out of it. But... I had been involved with my dad first ran for city council when I was probably 10 years old. And we were, even as young kids, we were actively involved in in the campaign. I mean, not doing anything that probably made a difference, but uh, we would go around and put the little uh, campaign literature pieces on cars and shopping centers. We would, uh, we he filmed a uh, TV commercial in one of his early ads where I would catch a football and on the side of the football would be his uh, bumper sticker. And I was supposed to catch it and twirl the football <laughs> so that the bumper sticker would be visible in the camera. So it took us about 20 times to do that. And uh, we would always go to the, the fair. They seemed like you always had a booth down at the fair, particularly during election season. Uh, and there were all kinds of little family-oriented events where we would tag along. And I just thought this was a big deal to be tagging along with this city councilman, particularly when the it was so new because there was a lot of positive energy uh, with the consolidation just having passed. J.R. Allen was it, the mayor. It, he was the mayor and uh, it, it early on. And so I guess deep down that sort of made a mark on me about uh, – if the opportunity presented itself to explore that. And so after I'd been back, um, this would have been in 92, so I'd been practicing law about six years, six or seven years, he decided he was going to retire after 19 years, maybe 20 years. Was that a district or an at-large seat? It was at-large seat. Citywide. So I I was 32 years old, and I announced that I was going to run for his seat. uh, uh, And... uh, we did. I campaigned, and we ended up fortunately running, which was one of the best experiences of my life, um, not only because I won, but because it forced me to get out of my comfort zone and meet people that I would have likely never come in contact with as a lawyer and go to places in this town that I would have, that I had I'd been here my entire life, but there were places in this town where I had not visited, uh, had not had occasion to go there or reason to go there, that um, as an at-large city council person, um, when I campaigned, I needed to go to those places. And were some I, of those on the south side? A lot of those were on the south side, but not all, not all were in the south side. There were other parts of the city that I hadn't visited either. But um, there were a lot of places on the south side where I visited, a lot of churches that I visited, which was just different from the way churches that I had grown up approached politics it was an expectation, at least back then, in some churches that you needed to come by, not just when you were running for election, but after you got elected. And um, it, was a, it was just a broadening experience for me, and 
um, made me a better council person. I think made me a better senator later on. It makes me a better judge. Uh, but it was really a great, a great experience. You did not take the political route. No. I didn't, so that would make you the smarter of the two brothers. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. I didn't get the same political bug. I think while my brother was out at the fair catching the football, I was probably too small to be catching footballs, and I was probably hanging out at the house with my mom. So I don't think I quite got that that same gene that he got. Uh, when I graduated law school in 1992 and decided to go to work for my brother and his law partner at the time, Jerry Buchanan, to form a three-man law firm that had just started, I come to work and find out he's running for city council. So, <laughs> so I, I decided the best thing for me to do was to get to work as a lawyer and learn to practice law and jump in with both feet, which is what I did. And so I stayed away from politics uh, for 25 years and just maintained my focus on the law practice and decided to devote my service to my clients and to the cause of justice as a lawyer. And that's what I did until 2018 uh, at the age of 50 when I decided to put my name in the hat for the Superior Court Judgeship. Do you respect the way he, he went about coming back and just literally becoming a trial lawyer and, and just work in the courtroom, raising a family? I mean, sure. I hired him. He, uh, <laughs> uh, Jerry Buchanan and I, we had, uh, we had been at Hatcher Stubbs, and uh, we decided that we wanted to try this on our own, and we just uh, decided to open our own law firm uh, which was a much greater risk for Jerry than it was for me because he was uh, about 10 years older than I was. And I also, my wife was also a lawyer, so we had a little cushion there, her having, uh, being a practicing lawyer herself. But then I guess we were out a year maybe. Uh, uh, just, two, maybe just six months. Six months, and we decided we need to hire our first associate. And it happened to be my brother Ben, who graduated number two in his class at the University of Georgia and had an offer with a big Atlanta law firm. And uh, he, they got out-recruited by a little old Buchanan and Land in Columbus, Georgia. Why did you go to Atlanta? You could have gone. Which, which one of the big firms was talking to you in Atlanta? Uh, well, there were several that I had interviewed with. The firm that I had worked with the summer before graduating from law school was Sutherland, Asbill, and Brennan, which was an outstanding law firm with really good people. Uh, and the reason I chose to come to Columbus is I felt like I could get better experience quicker in Columbus. Uh, I had an offer from that firm of a guaranteed paycheck. It was a good paycheck. There would be a lot of work involved. And then I had an offer from a law firm in Columbus that at the time they made the offer to me had no clients. <laughs> no, we had two clients. Well, we had Georgia Farm Bureau and Georgia Power Company. <laughs> Almost had no clients and, uh, and, and no guarantee. Which later income. became his client, Georgia Farm Bureau. <laughs> so in any event, I decided that what I wanted to be was a lawyer. And what I wanted to do was help people. And what I wanted to do was to go to court and actually try cases and appear in court, appear in front of judges and juries and argue my cases and represent clients. And I felt like if I went to Atlanta, as great of a firm as that was, I felt like I was going to be largely stuck in the library and carrying somebody else's suitcase. And I felt if I came to Columbus, I could get real-world experience, practical experience sooner. And that is ultimately what happened. Then you went to the state senate. I mean, you ran for the state senate after one term on council, right? Did you succeed Pete Robinson? I did. Pete, so, Pete decided that... Uh, it was um, time for him to become a government relations specialist. And um, so he left the legislature, and uh, I ran for his spot uh, in a contested, very contested Republican primary. There was no Democrat. Pete had been a Democrat. Uh, that district was shifting, but it was still not a overwhelmingly Republican or, de or Democratic district. It was kind of the Auburn Avenue it kind of well it was it was it was everything north of Macon Winton Road this was the Senate so it was a much larger yeah. district than the house there are only 56 senators in the entire state so it was larger than a house district but it was everything basically north of Macon Winton Road 
plus it was all of Harris County, all of Marion County, and all of Talbot County. So there was a lot of Democratic vote in that uh, district, particularly back in um, 1994, but no Democrat uh, announced for the race, and it was fought out in the Republican primary. And I had a very partisan uh, opponent, uh, Seth Harp. Who, who later uh, became uh, a state senator. Seth, who was, uh, who was very Republican um, and uh, was probably the uh, conventional wisdom would have said in a Republican primary, he's the person because he, had, he was older than I was. He had a lot of Republican Party contacts. And we ran, uh, we ran a, basically a general election campaign in a Republican primary trying to convince folks who would not traditionally vote in a Republican primary to vote in that primary because that's where their senator would be selected since there was no Democrat. And uh, we squeaked by. And then Seth, when I left um, in 2000, Seth then uh, succeeded me. There were future governors in that Senate when you got up there. I think Purdue was in that Senate, right? Uh, I served. I was good friends with um, Sonny Purdue. In fact, when he was elected governor, I swore him in, uh, primarily because he didn't know any uh, other judges who were who had been Republicans in the past. Because you remember, there was the changeover to all this Republican. Uh, legislature was quick, but but it, it didn't happen till after probably 2002 uh, or, or so. Um, but uh, I served with Sonny. I served with David Ralston, uh, David, who's was, now Speaker of the House, who's a good friend of mine. Was uh, Nathan Deal in the Senate? Nathan Deal had already left. Um, Johnny Isaacson, I served with Johnny. Um, he was in the Senate with me. Um, Casey Cagle, who ran for governor and lost, he was uh, he was in my class in the in the Senate, uh, but there aren't a lot of them left. Probably you were only up there what three terms? Or I was two? up there three terms. Okay. I was up there from ninety. I was elected in ninety four, and uh, left in two thousand. There was talk. I know when you were there, you were one of the ones saying, hey, this guy could be a statewide elected official, maybe lieutenant governor, governor. Did you ever think, hey, do I want to be governor? Do I want to be, do I want to put myself out and run statewide? Well, I think any, I think every politician thinks in the back of his mind that he or she could be president of the United States someday. And, uh, you know, they just, uh, they think those things. I, I say that half in jest. Uh, no, I mean, but, but I understand. Uh, Ben you know, shaking his yeah, head. I, mean, you know that I don't understand it. Po- polit- politics is all about timing. And, uh, you know, you can't think too far down that road uh, because uh, 95% of it is not in your hands anyway. You just try to do the best you can serving your constituents at that time. So if the opportunity ever presented itself and you wanted to do it, uh, you were in a position to, to do so. Do you think if he had not perished in the plane crash, J.R. Allen would have been the first Republican governor of Georgia? A lot of people believe that, particularly people who were contemporaries of his, um, including uh, my dad and Bob Heydrich and Jack Bassett and some of those people. Uh, uh, he would have... Did you say, do I think he would have been the first Republican? Yeah. I don't know about that. The, but the word, or would have been a governor? Would have been a governor? He, he, of course, was a progressive Republican when he was mayor. But um, he had told people uh, when he was laying the foundation for his gubernatorial campaign that he thought he would need to run as a Democrat to get elected uh, at that time. So I'm not sure he would have run as a, as a Republican. Let's go to 2001. You get a call from the White House. You're getting appointed to the federal bench, U.S. District Court judge. You were 41 at the time or 40? Um, 41, I guess. So you get the call from the White House. What went through your mind when you got the call that I just am a, I mean, I've been nominated and I've got to be approved for a federal judgeship? Uh, well, it was, it was a surprise, quite frankly, because, um, all the stars had to align perfectly for that to happen. And, um, there are a lot of people that, that wanted that position. And although, uh, President Bush, George Bush was doing the appointing, 
George W. Bush. George Bush, w. Bush, Bush was doing the appointment. It was his first year as president, uh, and this was going to be in his first group of, of his first year of, of judicial appointments. And um, there were some other partisan Republicans, lawyers that were very interested in the job that had some uh, party ties that were stronger than mine and that had some IOUs that people owed from, from the partisan party, party side of it and that were closer with some of the local congressional folks. But it just so happened that the, that the um, Senate then was in Democratic hands. Zell Miller and uh, Max Cleland were the senators. So any nominee of Bush needed to clear them because the Senate was going to do the confirmation. Uh, Leahy was chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I had a good relationship with uh, Governor Miller, particularly, who's Senator Miller, and had good relationship with people who were close to, to Max Cleland. And I think that uh, they liked the idea of a judge who was not an overt partisan. I think that's what happened for me. I, it, you know, it was a it was a moment in my life. I, you and I are the same age, and I grew up in a legal family. And federal judges had always been on this pedestal. And when you got appointed, I looked up and said, "Holy cow! They just appointed somebody that's my age. How does that happen?" I mean, that helped too because the other people that were competing for that job was one was probably mid fifties, the other one's early sixties. So I think being younger. They saw that as a positive because you could be on the bench longer. And you're 60 years old, and you sh you're showing no signs of slowing down. I hope not. <laughs> and I want to get 25 years of practicing law, and you get appointed three years ago by Governor Deal, correct, that is to, right. to the bench. What went through your mind when you, you said, okay, it's time, okay, I've practiced law, I've done the work, it's now time to go explore this other avenue of the law. What, what, what well, were you I had, thinking? I had, I had done what I wanted to do for 25 years, and I felt like I had accomplished a lot of what I wanted to accomplish in the law practice during those 25 years. After Clay left in late 2001 for his judgeship, I went on and practiced law with Jerry Buchanan for another 16 years in Columbus, and I basically was the if we had a managing partner, I was it. And so we, I, I ran the law firm, uh, and we, ex we grew up what we had that was there. We expanded upon what was there when Clay was there, and we tried some good cases. We had a good run there for a while. Uh, we tried cases and litigated against some of the best lawyers in the country. We worked with lawyers from all over the United States, uh, and I handled cases throughout Georgia and Alabama. And... I guess after 25 years of it, and when I reached the golden age of 50, I decided that if I was going to pursue a judgeship, uh, when Judge Frank Jordan retired, that was the one that I ought to pursue. I felt like, as Clay said earlier, timing is everything, and I felt like the timing was right for me at that point. I had been asked in the past by lawyers and others, uh, would you ever consider a judgeship? Are you interested in a judgeship? And I had always sort of frankly blew off that question and said, no, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I have a family to provide for, and I'm content helping people in the law practice. And that was a true statement. That was what I really enjoyed doing. And so after 25 years, I kind of changed my tune, and when that seat came open, I decided that if the governor saw fit to appoint me, I would take it on, and that's what happened. You know, interestingly, y'all's jobs are the same, but they're very different. You have a lifetime appointment. I mean, you can be impeached, but that's not happening. So, I mean, you've got a lifetime appointment. You have to put your name on a ballot every four years. How, I mean, talk about that difference. I mean. Well, for me personally, I made a commitment uh, in February of 2018 when I took an oath to be a Superior Court judge that I am ready, willing, and able to take on an election. Uh, that's something that you have to decide that you're willing to do before you throw your name in the hat. And I considered it. I considered the pros and cons of being a judge. I considered the pros and cons of being an elected judge. And, and what I came to the realization of 
is if this is something you want to do, if this is something you feel like where you can make a difference to your community and to the legal system, then you've got to be willing to take risks. And there are risks involved in any elected seat. And what I told Governor Deal when he interviewed me is that I'm taking this on with my eyes wide open. I'm going to assume that every year, every time there is an election, somebody's going to run against me, and I'm going to uh, handle myself and handle the business of the court in a manner that will make the voters proud, will make them know that they have a judge there who is to do the job fairly, justly, and efficiently. And then you let the chips fall where they may. I'm not one that sits around worrying about somebody running against me. I'm not one that sits around worrying about somebody beating me. Uh, and I told the governor at that interview that I don't view this seat, if you give it to me, as mine. It does not belong to me. It belongs to the people of the Chattahoochee Circuit. And I'll serve as long as they want me to serve. Uh, and that's how I see it. I mean, Well, I, I take my hat off to Ben and the other Superior Court and State Court judges that are willing to uh, – uh, do this important work and uh, be subject to running for election. Uh, I think the uh, founders of our country got it right on the federal side when they decided that uh, judges should be appointed uh, for as long as they exhibit good behavior, which for most judges that's for life, um, because it provides, to me, uh, a unique uh, type of independence where you don't have to worry about uh, in your decision-making how the voter may uh, feel about that decision because a lot of uh, decisions that we make, particularly on the federal side, uh, may be unpopular because part of what we spend our time doing We've seen is that over the last four years play out. That, and part of what we do, particularly on the federal side, is uh, handling constitutional right cases and those cases um, are designed to protect the rights of the minority, and you're often called upon to make rulings that the majority may not think um, are the most popular, but they're what the law requires. Now, state court judges do that too, and that's why I say I respect them for being able to do that job and be subject to popular election. But um, I'm very satisfied with the situation on the federal side with a lifetime appointment. I started this show with your words, your written words. I, your brother can write very well, too. And I noticed he has a Facebook page. You don't. <laughs> I do not do social media. Um, I'm, I, I don't want to share that much. Um, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I do not have a Facebook page, nor do I know how to search someone else's Facebook page. Do you have a Twitter account? I do not. Okay, so you're you're you obviously are on social media. And I, I do know how to go on Google and the internet, though. I want you. To, I'm not a complete dinosaur, but, I, but no social media for me. I do, and I didn't get actively involved in social media whatsoever until I became a judge. And I'll go back to what I said earlier. My job does not belong to me. It's not Ben Land's job. It belongs to the people of the circuit. And I think it's important to stay connected to the people. I think it's important for people to know what you're doing. And I think it's important for people to know what the courts are doing. And I view that as one outlet for that. We've been through this COVID crisis, and your courts have just opened up. You tried a case, actually, that on a speedy trial motion six months ago. But your courts have just opened. And you posted this on Facebook. And I want to read it. Before you read that, let me correct you. Our courts have been open the whole time. The jury, jury, the, tri okay. jury trials were closed. You sound like Judge we, McBride now. We, we, have, we have been, uh, people, many people have said your court's been closed for a year as if we were home on vacation. You've been but, Zooming. But we have been as busy as ever on Zoom and through other methods. But we have had a hiatus from jury trials for a year. I stand corrected, Your Honor. Um, this is what you wrote. And the Chief Justice of our Supreme Court gave us the go-ahead last week and tomorrow, so you wrote this Sunday. We begin again what I believe to be the single most critical component of our justice system, the right of trial by jury. Battles were fought and blood was shed by previous generations so that we have this sacred right. And, is up, and it is up to us to protect 
defend, and preserve it for ourselves and those who follow. Administering justice for all is our mission. Without jury trials, we simply cannot completely deliver on that mission. And you've got a story you were telling me, and I guess you can share it. You're in your first docket call. What happened this week because of jury trials? Well, we have not had a jury trial until this week for a year. Uh, and that was due to the pandemic, and that was due to an order from the Chief Justice of our Supreme Court. Uh, and that uh, restriction was lifted uh, just last week, I guess, for us to resume jury trials. And the judges of our circuit got together. We looked at the COVID numbers. We saw a declining trend. Uh, we put together a very, very detailed plan for the resumption of jury trials after we had a study committee study it in depth. We had judges, lawyers, law enforcement, epidemiologists, and others on our committee uh, to figure out how can we safely resume jury trials. We came up with a plan that included uh, picking juries off-site at the Civic Center so that they could be socially distanced. Once we have the jury, we bring them back to the courthouse and we have our trials there. So we feel like we can do it safely, and that's what we began to implement this week. And I can't, and I can't stress enough the importance of that decision and the importance of allowing jury trials to resume in superior court. We are an extremely busy court. There are thousands upon thousands of cases that are filed in our circuit every year. And most all of those cases, ultimately the end result is a jury trial if they're not settled or resolved. And particularly on the criminal side, there is often little incentive for the parties to resolve the cases if there's no jury trial in sight. Uh, the defendants, quite frankly, many of them don't want to plead guilty unless they have to. And the state can't make the defendant plead guilty. And if they can't make the defendant go to trial, there's no closure. So once we decided to open up for jury trials, uh, I had a docket this week. And I think at the beginning of the week or perhaps last week, there were probably 50 or 55 cases on there. Uh, I think as of this afternoon, over 40 of them had been closed either by guilty pleas or by the state of Georgia deciding they did not have the evidence to prosecute and they were dismissing those cases. So it worked both ways. The threat of a jury trial forced the prosecution to drop a case they may not have, and it forced defendants to plead guilty. It required both lawyers and both sides to get serious about the case because they realized we had a jury waiting next door at the ice rink waiting to come up to perform their duty. And the, if you're a lawyer, there is no greater motivator than knowing that a jury is on the way up. And when you know that, you get focused, you get serious, and cases get resolved. And I think that would have happened a year ago if we'd had jury trials a year ago. So you're glad you're this. You're glad that this is moving back, even though they're socially distanced and it doesn't look the same. It it's doesn't look the same. It doesn't quite feel the same, but at its essence, it is the same. And I am glad that we're moving forward because I think without them, uh, we cannot accomplish all that we are there to accomplish. We want to keep people safe. That is absolutely a critical part of our plan. We don't want jurors to be at risk. We're taking lots of precautions. Everybody's masked. They're socially distanced. There's lots of hand sanitizer. Uh, there is lots of focus on that, and we believe we can keep them safe, and that's what we're doing. But the, the cause of justice comes to a screeching halt if you don't have jury trials. When do you think we'll see federal jury trials again? Um, our current moratorium uh, ends April, and uh, we will be available to try cases starting 1st of May. Uh, we, we uh, of course, tried. Well, all along, we've been available to try cases depending upon the circumstances. Uh, for me, the the uh, most important issue with regard to these jury trial moratorium relates to the criminal cases where a defendant has a right under the Constitution to a speedy trial. And um, while that can be delayed to some extent, it, there have to be certain circumstances that justify that delay. So we did have a jury trial during in the middle of the pandemic uh, back in October. I think we're the only 
federal court in Georgia that actually tried a jury trial uh, after March of last year and uh, before December of last year. Do you miss? And that? it was a criminal. It was a criminal case, and the the person had been accused, and he was in custody, and he demanded a speedy trial, and. He, we thought that we could uh, conduct that trial in a manner that was um, safe, and so we did. But I still have concerns about uh, proceeding with jury trials, even at this stage. I'm hoping that May and June things will be much better. Uh, and there are two reasons for the concern. One is I don't know that we've got a full grasp of the COVID situation completely. Uh, it does appear to be... Uh, the more optimistic outlook at this time when people are getting vaccinated. But um, a lot of jurors will not have been vaccinated. And um, one of the concerns is not only for their health, which is the primary concern that we have, but it's to make sure that we organize these trials in a way that not only do we think they're reasonably safe, but that they think they are reasonably safe because you do not want distracted jurors serving on these cases. They've got to make important decisions. Their decision is more important than the judge's decisions during the trial. Because I mean, some they're of your the, civil cases can last four, five, six weeks, right? Well, and uh, they could, and uh, we are going to be ready to try civil cases in May also, but the criminal cases are going to have the priority. I understand the civil litigants, they have rights too, and they feel that um, – they need closure, and particularly the plaintiffs think that if they don't have the threat of a trial, they can't get it resolved. And administratively, we would like to uh, close the books on some of these cases. But to me, the most important thing is making sure these jurors are safe and that they feel safe so that when they reach a decision in the, their verdict, when, the, when they're charged to find the truth of the case, they find it based upon the evidence and not because they want to rush out of there because they're afraid they're going to get covid uh, I think we can accomplish that by taking certain precautions, but uh, uh, I don't think we're in a perfect situation yet. Hopefully this summer it'll be better. Let me switch gears just a little bit, but you just brought up juries. Do juries always get it right? I think juries uh, always get it right, although that would be different than the way I may would uh, may decide the case. And it may, in, in their decision, very rarely, I may would find it against the great weight of the evidence and have to overturn their verdict. But I think as long as that jury considered the case and followed the evidence, even if their decision ultimately is wrong, I think they've gotten it right because they've done the best that they could do under those circumstances. And the law has safety mechanisms within it that if a jury decides a case in a way that they think is right, but it's against the overwhelming weight of the evidence, then the judge can correct that error. But I've, I've never had a jury that I thought just completely disregarded the court's instructions or was rogue in any way or corrupt or anything like that. Uh, but it's, um, it, it, it's, the best situ it's, it's the best mechanism for resolving disputes and deciding a person's guilt or not. You're sort of smirking. I well, I would agree with that. I would say the Superior Court actually has an additional safeguard uh, in that the Superior Court judge actually sits as the 13th juror. That's what the Supreme Court calls us. And if we view the evidence and we believe that in good conscience and equity a new trial ought to be granted because the jury got it wrong, we have the sole authority as a Superior Court judge to declare a new trial as the 13th juror. Have you done that in your time? I have not done it on that ground at all. Uh, I have granted a new trial on one occasion for other procedural grounds, but not on the 13th juror grounds because in the cases that I've handled and the cases that I see, I think the system works and I think that no system is perfect. This is what I tell jurors after I dismiss them. Uh, and I tell them that when they come for jury duty. No, no system yet devised by man is perfect. However, the right of trial by jury in the American system is the greatest justice system in the world, bar none. Uh, other nations are jealous of America, in my opinion, for its justice system. Is it perfect? No. Is it always Correct? No, that's why we have appellate courts. That's why we have Supreme Courts. Have you been but overturned yet? Not yet. Have you been overturned by the 11th Circuit? 
Oh yes, but not not yeah. much. Yeah. But having now being into my twentieth year, yes. We, my time we, is we, my time is coming. I'm confident. But every every judge who's done this has been overturned if yeah, they do it, I, if they do it long I enough. Mean, and I'm not saying. I mean, it, it, it is the prerogative of the Eleventh Circuit to be wrong. Maybe the most controversial thing you said. Yes, I've been good. He's appointed for life. He can say whatever he wants. I've been I've been reversed on occasion, but not a lot. Well, we've hit a. I mean, this has flown by. Dylan uh, Hanson, who's our director, he's been sitting here, and usually I've got him pushing me, and he hasn't on this one at all. we're kind of at a point now where we do what I call turn the tables, and this is a little scary with <laughs> two professional question askers, but is there any question that you want to ask me? And I'll start with you, Ben. How fast do you go on your bicycle? Not near as fast as I used to be. <laughs> um, that's that's the quick answer. I'm not riding as much. I rode a little bit this uh, fall and summer when it looked like we might not have football, and I was going to have some Saturday way the foot college football like both of you, like you I know college football is one of my one of my pleasures and so I'm not near as fast on my bike as I used to be have you done the bike ride across Georgia seven or eight times and uh I actually was talking to Dwight Jones or reti- coach is retiring this year and he's going to do the bike ride across Georgia this year and he was like come on and do it with me I saw him at market day Saturday and I'm like coach it starts in Chattanooga there and it goes Chattanooga to Columbus this year I don't There's know, a, lot, a lot of hills there. There's hills between Chattanooga and Columbus. <laughs> I know that. What about you, Judge? Um, have you ever regretted not following in your father's footsteps and becoming a lawyer yourself? A couple of times. I mean, there time. I mean, probably the biggest time was during the Kenny Walker. Um, case. Uh, Jim Houston was our lead. Ben Holden was our editor at the time. And Jim wasn't a lawyer, but Jim could have been a very good lawyer if he had wanted to be. Um, and Ben was a lawyer, and we were we were fighting to get uh, to get um, uh, access to the Kenny Walker police files and the videotape of the shooting, and that would have been about 2003, 2004. And at that point, I was sitting in the courtroom. And um, we had a really fine lawyer who had come from out of town to represent us, Walter Bush. Walter was representing the newspaper, and it was a tense thing, but I watched him work, and that was the only point during this career where I said, you know, I wish I I was fighting. And I would have probably been a First Amendment lawyer, and unless you're David Hudson, there's not much work for First Amendment lawyers in Georgia. Um, David, I don't know if y'all know David at all. do know him. He, I mean, he's represented. He's won just about every freedom of the press battle you can win from over in Augusta, and he's done it for all that. But yeah, I mean, at times, but not overwhelming because now there have been times where I have done stories, and all of a sudden I've seen lawyers make a lot of money because of open records requests that I was filing and stuff that was ending up in court, and I was going, "These guys are making money off this," and that that, but. You know, I'm not at all disappointed with the path I took. I think it's been, uh, I think it's been the right one for me. If that makes sense. Good. Um, have you ever regretted being a lawyer and a judge? Uh, that feeling probably has crossed my mind <laughs> from time to time, but I, it's never been a prolonged feeling. No, I've, I think I've been fortunate for me to find the the uh, perfect job, if there is such a thing. No regrets. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, this has been really interesting. I mean, people don't realize how rare it is to get a sitting federal judge to sit down and talk to you. So, Judge Land, we really appreciate you being here. Ben, we really appreciate you too because Superior Court judges, I mean, I've been trying to get Bobby Peters to do an interview for forever, and Bobby says the only way he'll interview with me is if he gets to do an hour of me asking me the questions and then I do an hour of asking Judge Peters the question. So I'm not sure if that negotiation will ever happen. But I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot about both of y'all, your family, um, about kind of why you're doing this. And, you know, I'm not, I think I want to go back and listen to this now where I can listen to it with fresh ears. But I really appreciate both of y'all joining us tonight. 
Um, that will do it for the show. What we're going to do right now, let's do, we got to do the pushes. Dylan's going to walk me through them again until I get these down. We'll start with you can watch the Chuck Williams show streaming live on WRBL.com every Tuesday night from 7 to 8 Eastern. Watch the replay the next day on our website or any day after the next day on our website. And coming soon, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Audible. You can listen to the show on the go. Also, obviously, we have social. I have social media. You can find me on Twitter at Chuck Williams. I've been there since 2008, and we really need a famous politician, athlete, or entertainer so I can sell my Twitter handle. And then on Facebook, it's Chuck Williams WRBL. And then on uh, Instagram, is Instagram the other one? Chuck Williams 0999. Thanks, Dylan. I want to give Dylan a shout-out. Dylan has directed all four shows, and he's a lifesaver, and he helps get it cut and on on there to on the website tomorrow where you can always get it you know and i'm gonna close kind of the way i've closed all four of these show these shows is one i want everybody out there to be safe but also be kind because right now as we kind of are coming out of this covid crisis it appears you never know you really got to be kind because you never know what's in the other guy's suitcase thanks for listening to the chuck williams show